you have your Bible with you this morning, we're turning to the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter uh, 53, I forgot to announce, uh, this Thursday morning at 10.30 a.m. over in Ben Burb is the Heart and Home uh, Coffee Morning. So remember that uh, this Thursday uh, morning. Isaiah, please, and the 35th chapter. Isaiah, and chapter 35, please, and we're going to read from verse, verse number 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as the heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. And the inhabitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And the highway shall be there and away. And it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men. Though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. Father, we bow before thee again this morning. And Lord, we just come to thee and we pray for your help. We feel this morning that the enemy would seek to divert us. We feel that he would seek to try to distract us. And so, Lord, we come as a congregation of your people again, and we gather round your throne of grace, and we pray that you would come and settle us, Lord, in thy divine presence. We pray this morning, O gracious God, that you would put a covering around this assembly this morning. We pray against the powers of darkness. We pray that you would come, Lord, O God, and indeed unstop our ears. We pray that you would come, Lord, and fill this very hall this morning with the very presence of God. How we need thee, Lord. And so I cast myself upon thee, praying, Lord, that you will come and cleanse and fill and anoint and use. Take this word this morning, O God, and do something in all of our hearts. Don't let us leave this house this morning the same way that we came in. We pray for a movement a movement of God in all of our hearts. 
We ask it in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah is known, as we have said before and many times from this platform, Isaiah is that prophet that was known as the evangelical prophet. He said more about the person of the Lord Jesus more than any other Old Testament writer. He talked about his birth, talked about his life, talked about his ministry, talked about his death, talked about his wonderful resurrection and then his ascension. Isaiah was not only the man of God that brought the vision of Christ to the people, but he brought the revelation of God again and again to the nation of Israel. In the 33rd chapter of this book, it's a, it's a chapter of divine judgment. The 33rd chapter of Isaiah starts with the word woe. And then the 34th chapter of Isaiah is the chapter of divine instruction. In verse 16 it says there, Seek out the book of the Lord and read it. But the 35th chapter, this chapter that we're in this morning, is the chapter of divine intervention. And I'm glad as we read through the Word of God from Genesis right to Revelation that again and again and again God intervened. Times when it seems to be a low ebb. Just like the children of Israel for 400 years under the tyranny of the Egyptians. And then there comes a man out of the wilderness, a man by the name of Moses, and God intervened. Right throughout the history of Israel, that has always been the case when the people of God were at a low ebb and the tide seemed to be far, far out. It was just at that very pivotal moment in time when God would intervene. That's what happens here in the 35th chapter of Isaiah. There's four ways that we could look at this chapter and indeed you could take a whole week of meetings on it. You could look at this chapter historically when the children of Israel turn again to the one that they had forsaken. They turn again to the fountain of living water. They turn again to their first love. They turn again to the one that they served and worshipped and adored. And yet again and again they got sidetracked. They got diverted. They got called away onto idols that had ears but couldn't hear hands that couldn't help, eyes that couldn't see, and lips that couldn't speak. But then they come back again. They come back again to their first love. Maybe there's someone here this morning, and even as we're in the house of God, God would start to tug on your heart. It's about time that you would come back again. Come back to me. Hosea is that wonderful prophecy and 14 times God, through the prophet Hosea, he uses the word return, return, return. But not only could we look at this chapter this morning historically, we could look at it prophetically. In verse 1 and verse 2, and indeed in verse 10, you'll see a wonderful picture of what's going to happen in the coming day on this very earth. Whenever the church of Jesus Christ is taken up into, into the heavens, and there we stand before the Lord, there's a clock that starts to tick, and you're going to hear about that tonight. 
And then after the seven-year tribulation, the Lord Jesus will literally bodily come and he will stand on the Mount of Olives and he will reign and he will rule from his father's throne, David, for 1,000 years. And it's saying that the wilderness will blossom. It is saying that the men and women of Israel, that little remnant, will come again to Zion and joy and everlasting peace shall be upon their head. We could look at it evangelically this morning. In verse 4 it says, He will come and save you. And if you're here this morning and you're not saved, and I see a number here today, and you know nothing of the peace of God in your heart, you know nothing this morning of sins forgiven, you know nothing of having fellowship with God, you know nothing of having that peace in your heart, well, here's a word from God to your soul. In verse 4, He... And only he, he will come. He will come and save you. He will find you at the very point of your need. I was thinking during the week of times when the Lord Jesus just met the right people at the right time. For instance, a woman in John 4, she, she was going out in the heat of the day on her own. And no one wanted to be with her and she went to Syker's well and, and the Lord was there. He, he came to her at the right time. He came at the right place. And then of course there was the case that was up the tree. The Lord came to the very place that he was. He knew where he was. He knew his heart's desire. Many times throughout the word, the Lord comes to where we are. But in the moments that we have this morning as we draw this meeting to a close, I want to approach and apply this chapter this morning to every individual here this morning that is truly born again. I want to apply it spiritually to you and I as the people of God. Because God speaks through His Word. As you and I get down to the Word of God and as we read it and we feed upon it, how He comes and He, he ministers to our heart. And it seems to be that the Lord was looking over the battlements of heaven. And he was looking down at his people. And he was observing them and he was watching them. And he's doing the very same thing today. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are ever open unto their cry. And he knows where we are this morning along the road of life. And as he looks out over the battlements of heaven... There's some things that he detects, some things that he sees in his people. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, strengthen ye the weak hands. That's the first thing that he sees. And that's the first thing that the Lord notices about these people, the redeemed of the Lord, as he would look over the battlements of heaven and he would observe them and he would watch them. The first thing that he notices about them is there is a weakness among them. There is a weakness in their hands. Hands always speak of service. And as the Lord would look over, he, he says, strengthen ye the weak hands. That word weak there is the word to, to be slack. It's the word to lose grip. It's the word whenever someone is holding a rope. Uh, and the weight gets so heavy and the burden is such a strain that no matter how tight they hold the rope, it starts to slip. 
And whenever Paul was writing to young Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, there's, there's two things that Paul said to young Timothy. He said, Timothy, what you need to do as a young believer, you need to stir up the gift. You need to stir up the gift of God that is within thee. And then he says, not only stir up, he says you need to hold fast. Uh, don't slacken your grip on the things of God. Uh, maybe there's individuals here this morning. Maybe there's parents here this morning. Uh, and God has given you a promise. God has given you a word. And the battle, the battle is raging and the burden is heavy. And it would seem almost that you would start to lose your grip. That, that the hands would start to grow weak. And you would say, Lord, how long do I have to hold this promise? How long do I have to hold the burden? How long do I have to wait, Lord, because, before you come and relieve me of my burden that's on my heart? You remember in Exodus chapter 17, my, whenever the Amalekites came, they came from behind and they, they came against the children of Israel and Joshua and his chosen men went down into the arena of battle. And then there was the man Moses and he was standing on the mountain and he lifted up his hands and whenever Moses raised up his hands, how the children of Israel, they prevailed against the enemy. But the Bible says that Moses' hands, they grew heavy. The word is they grew weary. And maybe this morning there's many of God's people, even here today, and you say, Lord, that's exactly where I am along the road of life. My hands are heavy, Lord. I'm weary. The word is there like a man that was in a boxing ring. And he would get to the first round and he would be full of vigor. My, he would be punching and he would be dodging and he would use the left hook and the right hook. And he would go through the first, the second, the third, the fourth round. But then whenever you get into the fifth round, his energy would start to deplete. And then whenever you get into the seventh round, my, his hands would drop. The eighth round, the hands would maybe be so heavy that he couldn't lift. And it's at that very moment that he's an open target to the enemy. My dear people this morning, don't drop your hands. Strengthen ye the weak hands. And then he said this, confirm the feeble knees. And knees, of course, they speak about our prayer life, but they also speak about our walk. You ever see someone with a bad knee? They'll always walk with a limp because their knee affects their feet. And as God is looking over the battlements of heaven, He's starting to diagnose issues in the life of His people, and He says there's a weakness in their hands, there is a, a feebleness in their knees. That word feeble there is the word to stagger back and forward. It's the word that God would use as He looked upon His people. They had the altar. They had the priesthood. They had the Word of God. But He said they do not have a consistent walk. James talks about that. He, he said the double-minded man is unstable, unsteady in all of his ways. Oh, one day he'll be in the prayer meeting. You'll not see him for another month. Oh, one day you'll see them at church on a Sunday morning, but you'll never see them for maybe a number of weeks. One, one Sunday night a month you'll maybe see them there, and they may come and they may not come. They're unstable in their walk. They've got feeble knees. 
And as God would diagnose the problem, this is what he said. He said, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. And I want to ask every one of us here this morning, how high are we walking before the Lord? How high is our path? Do we deviate to the left or to the right? Do we set our course and do we walk a steady course? Do we walk a consistent course? Do we walk a faithful course? No matter who else comes with us, no matter who's against us and who is for us, do we say, Lord, I'm going to press through. I'm going to walk. I'm going to be consistent. That's the life that Enoch lived. Because the Bible says that Enoch walked with God. Now, after having said that, the Lord introduces something wonderful. And this is something that the Lord has been laying in my heart. Because one thing that the Holy Spirit does, He convicts. He doesn't condemn. You see, the devil comes to condemn us, and what he does is he keeps us under. He said, you have failed. And you should, be, you should be really sorry for that, and so you should wallow in your failure. He comes to condemn but the Holy Spirit doesn't have a condemning ministry. The Bible says He has a convicting ministry. And what that means is this, that He shows us our need, and then He gives us a solution. He says, I don't want you to stay there. I don't want your hands to be weak any longer. I don't want your knees to be feeble any longer. And so God, He comes and He says, Strengthen ye the weak hands. And you're introduced to the strengthening ministry of the Lord. You remember Job, and Job was that man that was in the crucible of affliction. He was tried more than any other man, I'm sure, other than the Lord Jesus. And Job, in Job 4, it says this, Thy word has upholden me. My, it has upholden me when I was falling, and now has strengthened the feeble knees. And the Lord comes alongside and He would strengthen His people. And I just want to give you a few illustrations of that before we move on. In Daniel chapter 10, it says that Daniel was by the riverside and he was praying. And he saw a wonderful revelation of the Lord. And the Bible says that all strength left him and he fell prostrate on the ground. And you know what the Bible goes on to say? Then he laid his hand upon me and touched me and he strengthened me. And the Lord has a strengthening ministry in relation to our prayer life. Whenever all oh, the hands drop, whenever the burden seems so heavy, and we're almost at which corner, it's at that very moment like Daniel that the Lord can strengthen us in our prayers. What about that man that went 100 miles on his own out into the wilderness of Bathsheba? And there he was, and he was sitting under the juniper tree, and he was sitting feared from, from running from Jezebel and full of fear. And he was exhausted, and he said, Lord, it is enough. I am no better than my father's. God didn't want them to be any better. He just wanted them to be himself. And he fell asleep on the angel of the Lord. The, the pre-incarnate Christ came, and the Bible says he, he touched him. And he fed him. He gave him the double meal. And the Bible says he went in the strength of it for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord can strengthen us in our prayers. God can strengthen us in our service. 
And right throughout the Word of God, you'll find it. What about Paul? He said, all men forsook me. Demas was gone. Mark was gone. All of his friends were gone. And he said, I stood before Agrippa and Felix on my own. At my first answer, no man stood with me. But the Lord stood with me and he, he strengthened me. You see, he can strengthen you in your prayer life. He can strengthen you in your service. He can strengthen you in your trial. Wasn't it Paul whenever he prayed concerning the thorn in the flesh? Oh, there was a word from heaven. He says, Paul, I'm not going to take it away, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, with all of the limitations of his body, with all of the battering that he took, my, there was something of the power of God rested upon him because there was one that strengthened him and sustained him. And you say to me, well, Stephen, I'm not the Apostle Paul. And I'm not Elijah. And I'm not like the man of God, Daniel. Could God strengthen me? Well, you'll remember the, the wonderful prophecy over the children of Asher. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says this, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. And God is the one that strengthens us. He not only has a strengthening ministry, he has an encouraging ministry. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart. And I'm sure out of this congregation this morning, there's a number that have a fearful heart. Fearful of the future. and Fearful because of your family. and Fearful because of so many circumstances in your life and so many things that are happening even in your mind. What's going to happen? What's going to happen when I'm not here? What's going to happen if the bills are not paid? What's going to happen if I run out of work? And all of these fears can come upon us even as we come into the house of God and the Lord would look over at His people and He would say, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees and say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong. Be strong and fear not. That word fearful heart there is the word hasty. It's the word to be rash. It's the word to be anxious. It's the word to be disturbed. And if you want an illustration of that, you'll need to go a couple of, couple of thousand miles away to a little village called Bethany. And there was a woman by the name of Mary and she sat at the feet of the Lord and her sister Martha, the Bible says, and the Lord said to her, Thou art careful and troubled. The word is disturbed, anxious about many things. And I'm sure there's mothers here this morning. And maybe your husband doesn't even know, dear. And your children don't know. But inside your breast this morning, you've got a fearful heart. It's disturbed. It's an anxious heart. And I can't instruct you in what to do, but all I would ask you to do is listen to the words of the Lord. He said, be strong, fear not. He doesn't end there. Listen to it and look at it in verse 4. He says, behold, your God will come. I like that. Because God will come to you as his child wherever you are and whatever your burden is and whatever is disturbing your heart and whatever is weighing you down. Thank God he just doesn't say tighten yourself up. Pull your bootstraps up. 
Square your shoulders and face into the wind. No, he doesn't just say that. He says, look, you can be strong and you can fear not because I will come. I will come. And that's a word to some of our hearts this morning. And as he looks over the battlements of heaven, he not only sees a weakness, he sees something else. And he detects another area of the life of his people, and he detects among them a sickness. You know, whenever you go to the doctors, they used to do it, they maybe don't do it now because you have to pay them to do everything, but they used to, used to go in and they would, they would do a certain amount of tests. The first thing that they would do is they would take your temperature. And they would see whether you're the right temperature or not. Maybe you're too hot or maybe you're too cold. Uh, maybe there's some of us here this morning and we're too cold. I'm sure there's not too many of us are too hot. And then what the doctor would do, he would take our blood pressure to find out what our heart is like. In all of these different areas, he would test our, our sensibility. He would test our reactions. He would test all of the, the, the faculties of our body. And as the great physician would, would test his people, there were some defects that he saw in their health. The first thing is you'll find it in verse number 5. He talked about those that were blind. He, he said, there's those among you and you're short-sighted. There's a problem with your vision. They're blind. And that's why the church of Laodicea, they, they said that we are rich and increased with goods and a need of nothing. And the Lord Jesus, he diagnosed the same problem. He said, thou knowest not that you're wretched, miserable, naked, and blind. And what happened in the eastern country because of the dust and and because of the, of, of the sandstorms, what would happen? There would be a little speck of dirt would get into the eye. And that little speck of dirt, it would start to fester. It would start to bring an infection. And it would hinder the vision. And that's why the Lord said to the church of Laodicea, what you need to do is you need eyesal. You're too short-sighted. And it's something, again, that God has been laying on my own heart that so often we can see the temporal things. We can see the bills and we can see the trials and we can see the sickness and we can see and hear the accusations of the enemy. And all of those things are on a temporal sphere and in a temporal arena. But Paul said the, the things that are not seen are eternal. Eternal things. And would to God that we would get our vision again onto the eternal that we would be long-sighted. Look at it again, verse 5. I'm going to rush through it. He deals with their eyes. He deals with their ears. He said that the ears of the, of the death shall be unstopped. And that what it really means is there's something that was blocking their ears. There wasn't an issue with their drum. There was an issue between their eardrum and the noise. And you know, that's what we've been saying to the young people on Friday night, that God is always continually speaking. He's a God that speaks. And yet so many of us, we say, Lord, why is it that you speak to other people, but you don't speak to me? My dear individual, as a believer this morning, he speaks to you as much as he speaks to any other child of God. The problem is not with God speaking. The problem is with us hearing. There's a problem with the hearing. And then, of course, he goes on in chapter, verse 6. He talks about their feet. The lame shall leap. He talks about their lips, the lips of praise. 
And so he convicts his people not to condemn them, but he convicts them of a need. And he says, look, there's a need in your life and you need to change that. And I can do that for you if you allow me to do that. And right throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus as he was here, he touched the lame. My, he touched those that were dumb. He touched those that were deaf. He touched the eyes of the blind. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. And maybe even this morning as I am ministering to you, God the Holy Spirit would just lay his gentle hand upon you and say, my dear child, that is exactly what I detect in your life. I detect a blindness. Blindness to a dying world. I detect a deafness to my voice. I detect there's a lameness. You're not walking the way I would love you to walk. My, I would love you to leap as a heart. That's what the verse says. He says, I would love you to sing my praises, but instead of that, you're dumb. And so again and again, the Lord comes and he, he sees the issue. And I haven't got time this morning to rule them out. I'll give you the last one and then we'll close our meeting. Because he not only detects among the people of God a weakness, and he not only detects among his people a sickness, he detects among his people a dryness. He, he talked about the parched land in verse 7. He talked in verse 6 about the wilderness and the desert. And these people that were meant to be marked by vitality in life, it seems to be that they're so dry. And just like the Gibeonites that came to Joshua, they had their, their old fusty bottles and their old out-of-date bread, and they were living in existence on the past. Everything had withered up. Everything had dried up. There was no moisture there. There was no life there. There was no vitality there. All was dry and all was barren. And you know what happens to dryness? Dry ground turns into hard ground. And you know one of the things about a Christian that becomes a dry Christian? You know what happens? Even the very nature of law, of the, the, the natural laws will tell you, whenever soil becomes dry, it becomes hard. Hard. Hard towards other Christians. Hard and dry in relation to the church. Hard and dry in relation to a dying world. Hard and dry concerning his word and be concerning prayer. And he says, look, I want to bring pools. I want to bring springs. I want to bring streams in the desert. Oh, these people were hard. They were hard. You know, David had some mighty men. One of those mighty men was a man by the name of Joab. And Joab was a wonderful soldier. He was a mighty man. He was a military-minded man. He was a strategist. Everything he did, he did it perfectly. Everything he did, he did it with all of his zeal. But you remember it was Joab who, who, who came with venom in his heart and he never forgave a man my, there in the, in the Word of God as the name of Abner. And Abner, what he did was he slew, he killed Joab's brother, and Joab never forgot about it. He always fed upon it. He says, I'm going to kill that man. I'm going to get him back. He deserves to die because of what he has done to me. And Joab, while he was a mighty man of valor and a mighty man of war, he had a hard heart. 
And I'm not saying that this morning about it myself because I'm using the words of David. This is what David said. Whenever Joab killed Abner, he says, they be too hard for me. I can't use them the way that I want to use them because they've got a hard heart. And so the Lord detects a weakness. He detects a sickness. He detects a dryness. You know, I was thinking about it during the week and I've been really, really enjoying it. The Bible opens with a river. Genesis chapter 2, whenever God, He, he made creation, and my, it must have been wonderful. It must have been beautiful to see the flowers and see the birds and all of creation there before the fall, the majesty, the beauty. And the Bible says in the garden, He put a river. And that river went into four heads. And the Bible not only begins with a river, it ends with a river. And in Revelation 22, he talks about the pure river of life. And he gives the invitation, whosoever will, let him come and take of the river of life freely. But between Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation 22, there's the river source. There's the fountainhead. Because on the last day of the feast, the waterless day, My, the days that went before for seven days, the priests went down to the pool of Siloam and they got their little vessel of water and they brought it up to the altar and they poured it out and they sang the great Hallel Psalms. But on the last day of the feast, there was no water that day. And on that day, there stood a man, the greatest man that ever lived. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He's a fountainhead. And so often we sing it, I'm living on a mountain underneath a cloudless sky. I'm drinking of the fountain that never shall run dry. Those four rivers in the Garden of of Eden, let me say this to you, study it whenever you go home. The first one was called Pison. You know what that word means? It will be a river that will always increase. My dear believer, this morning, if you're dry, if there's weakness, if there's sickness, there's a water, the river this morning that will never run dry. It will always increase. It will get deeper and wider as you grow and as you drink. The capacity of God's blessing will always meet the hunger of your heart. The second river that is in the Garden of Eden is not only the word Pison, it's the word Gion. It means it will burst forth. It will be spontaneous. It's a river that you can't restrain. And men and women that are drawing from the fountain head, you know what happens? There's a river that starts to bubble in their heart and it starts to move out from their life and it increases in its depth and it increases in its supply. It grows to the ankles and then to the knees and then to the loins and then there's waters to swim in. Hallelujah. And then, of course, it will burst forth. It will come out of the womb, living waters. The third one is Hedil. It means it's a fast-flowing river, speaks of power, speaks of dynamic. And the last one is the river Euphrates. You'll maybe hear about that tonight, and that means it's a river that is fruitful. And here the Lord, He looks over and He sees the issue, and He diagnoses the problem. He says, look, I don't want you to stay there. I don't want you to wallow in your need. I don't want you to wallow, my, in your failure. I don't want you to stay as a sick child. I don't want you to stay dry. I don't want you to stay lame and blind. Oh, there is a river. The streams thereof make glad the city of God. Oh, my dear people, draw from the river the last thing 
And this is the solution to the whole thing. God brings these people to one final solution. And I want you and I would love you to remember this to the day that you die. It's found in verse 8. In verse 8 we read, And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men. No fool shall not err therein. He brings his people to the solution of the problem. He says, I want to do a work in your heart. I don't want you to try and do it yourselves. You can't make yourself, oh, you can't make yourself into the Christian I want you to be, but I can come and do that for you. He says the solution is getting onto the highway of holiness. You know, so many of us in the evangelical church in Northern Ireland, we think that holiness is just being separate from the world. You have to wear a black tie and you have to wear a suit and you have to walk around with a sour face and you have to say your amens and you have to really try and be a Christian to the world and you don't have television and you don't have the internet and you, you do all of these things that uh, try to curtail a life of holiness. But my dear people, the Hindus do that. The Muslims pray five times a day. Whenever we were out the other day for a walk on Saturday, we were walking through a park down near Newton Ards and there was a, a group of Muslims at two o'clock in the day and it was a cold day and they were bowing on their mats in the car park toward the east. You see, my dear people, holiness is not what you look like. Holiness will affect what you look like. Holiness doesn't start on the outside. Holiness starts on the inside. Holiness is something that God does in the heart and the life of a believer that permeates to every area and every avenue and every disposition of the life that holiness flavors the individually. Holiness comes and moves through their heart, touches their hands and affects their lips, but it comes from the interior to the exterior. And if you want a verse for that, you'll find it in Philippians chapter 2. It says that it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And the river of divine blessing, my dear people, will only and always flow from a clean altar. Whenever you read in Ezekiel chapter 47 about the river of God, and it says there that everywhere that the river went, it brings life, it brings life. Where there's death, there's life. But in Ezekiel chapter 43... It was that very altar that had to be cleansed. It had to be a clean altar before the river of blessing could move. We, we wouldn't go out of the house without having a clean face. We wouldn't put on clothes unless they're clean. We wouldn't go to a wedding or a funeral unless we washed the car. And so it is that God, He wants men and women to have a clean heart on the inside. That's why we preached on last Sunday night that God works on the inside and then He moves to the outside where He permeates the life, where He deals with the heart and then He moves out from that. And you say to me, Stephen, it's impossible for me to live a holy life now. Do you think so? Do you think God would say in 1 Peter, be ye holy as I am holy, if we couldn't be holy? If all holiness is, is reading your Bible 10 hours a day and praying 10 hours a day and then going to church the last four hours of the day, my dear people, that is not what holiness is. Holiness is whenever God comes and inhabitates the heart 
where he comes and he makes himself at home. Whenever you were saved, he bought you, he owned you, but he wants to take precedence. He wants to take residence in your heart, every room, every area, every aspect, and then he will come and just like a light bulb in the house, whenever the light comes on in the room, men and women outside, they see the light moving out, moving out to a dark world. I haven't got time this morning to go through all of that, but God doesn't drive His people to holiness. I'm not here this morning to drive you. I'm not here to say this morning what you need to do is you need to get down and you need to repent and you need to bend and you need to feel sorry. I'm not going to do that. Because God drove the children of Israel out of Egypt, but He led them into Canaan. And what will happen in the life of a believer? They'll say, Lord, I am saved. I know that. I thank God for that. But what will start to happen? It'll just be like a little stone in your shoe. There'll be something niggling there in your heart. Lord, I would love to be clean on the inside. And no matter how much you read or pray or serve, my dear people, that stone will always be there until God takes it out. It's like a little speck of dust in your eye. It will irritate, it will always be there, and God will put a hunger in your heart for holiness. Not just to have everything right on the outside, my dear people, but to have everything right on the inside. Holiness. Now, just something about this holiness. Verse 8, it says, There shall be a way and a highway, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. This is a higher way. This is something that the Lord Jesus has bought for you. This is something that the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary purchased on, his, on your behalf and His precious blood was shed not only to change your life and not only put your name in heaven, but to put His holiness in your heart. He doesn't need to have to pay for it again. It's already been procured 2,000 years ago. But what do you and I need to do? We need to appropriate it to the life. It's a pure way. There shall be no unclean thing pass over it. You know, my dear people, this morning, that's why in Northern Ireland, we're experts on the exterior. Oh, we're experts on the outside, but God says maybe on the inside there's uncleanness there. Uncleanness in relation to temper. Uncleanness in relation to lust. And there was a young man stayed after the meeting last night. Last Sunday night, and he says, Stephen, I have a massive problem with lust. My marriage is going to be in the rocks. Can God do anything for me? And I said to him, do you believe that God can take a homosexual and take the homosexual lust out of their heart? He said, absolutely. Do you believe then God can do that with the heart of a man or woman that's a, that they use the term heterosexual, someone has, that has natural desires, but that thing masters them, that thing controls them? My dear people, he can do that. Because the highway of holiness is a way that is a pure way. It's a plain way. It says, the fool shall not err therein. That's someone with a mental, a limited mental capacity. Someone that doesn't really know the great doctrines of the Word of God, yet they can walk in this way. 
They can walk in the way of, of purity where God comes and does a work in the heart where they're not striving, they're not trying. Oh God, I'm saved, but will you make me clean? Will you make my heart a, a perfect habitation for your spirit? And he will come down, and I believe it's an instantaneous work, and then you grow in that, and immediately God comes down and he gives you victory over sin, and you walk in holiness. There's nothing more simple than obeying God. That's a plain thing to do. That's a simple thing to do. It's not only a pure way, it's a plain way, it's a protected way. Verse 9, no lion shall be there or any ravenous beast. You know the ravenous beast that's in our heart? You know at times there whenever you're tired and my everything has gone against you and something rises within us, oh... You lose maybe your temper before your family or your wife. You say something on the spur of the moment. And you know what happened? The beast has come up. But whenever God comes into the heart, my dear people, and he cleanses and he purges, it's not like trying to keep a man in the cupboard and my, you're trying to overpower him. No, my dear people, God lays the sword to the flesh. That's why Paul said, I am crucified, dead. It's not only a pure way, it's not only a plain way, it's a progressive way. Look at it as we close. It says at the end of verse 9, but the redeemed shall walk there to progress with the Lord, my dear people. Again, I want God to put an appetite in your heart. Don't stay where you are. Don't stay where you are. Some of you young men and women here this morning, don't stay where you are. Progress. Walk continually with the Lord in the walk of fellowship. Lastly, it's a precious way in verse 10. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. And maybe even this morning there's an older believer and you say, Stephen, I used to be on the highway. I remember the days when God was so near. I remember those days of purity and power and fruitfulness. I was drawing from the fountainhead. My, there was that increase. There was that fruitfulness. There was that power. But oh, I've been distracted. Well, I'm not going to beat you this morning. You know, whenever you turn off the main road and you go down a dusty road, you know what happens when you find you're on the wrong road. You put the car into reverse and then you put her into first gear. And you get back to where you were meant to be. And in Jeremiah it says this, Set up the waymakers and set thine heart toward the highway. <laughs> oh, my dear people, would to God something of the Spirit would say to every one of us, you're saved. Oh, thank God. But oh, you see the ravenous beast inside. You see that thing that will rise, that impurity, let me deal with it. Come to me by faith and cleanse it and purge it. Let me come and take up my holy habitation. Set thy way until the highway. Oh, my dear people, and stay on the way. The king's highway, it talks in the book of, book of Numbers about the king's, the king's highway. Let us pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
I can't answer that question for you this morning, my dear people. But even just as a moment before the Lord, and as we go down into these meetings and these Sunday nights, God is looking for clean people. And we know as individuals, if we're on the wrong way or if we're on the highway, the highway of holiness, the way of purity, the way of power, set thine eye toward the highway. Father, we bow before thee this morning. And Father, we thank you for these dear people that have come to this house, and we thank thee, Lord, that they are precious to thee. We thank you, Lord, that you love them more than I can tell this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is toward every one of them. And Father, we pray, oh God, in 2024, we will not only be all right on the outside, but Lord, on the inside, in the, in the very seat of our heart, of the emotions, our disposition, Lord, that you will come and you will reign and then permeate out into every area of our life, that you will make us sweet, Lord, to a dying world. Oh, Father, and so, Lord, we pray that you will take your word we just pray whatever you've said to us this morning. Just let it be like that little stone in the shoe, Lord. That it'll always be there until we yield, until we get that area sorted, until we go through. Oh, God, and so we bless you this morning. We thank you for what you're going to do even with these dear people. Thank you for what you're going to do tonight, Lord. And so, Father, we pray as we sing this last hymn that you will bless us and do us good. We ask it in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.